This is a conversation with Stephen Borges. Hi, Stephen. Uh, hi, Serge. So you have paid a lot of attention to the nervous system. Yes. Um, through my, my whole life, I've been doing research uh, on how neuroregulation of what we call physiological state and behavior, uh, how that's related to how we interact socially. It's actually been a, a real curiosity that I had when I was quite young because as everyone, we, we always are interested in how we regulate our behavioral states in the presence of others. So that interest has been really prevalent in my life in thinking about it. And it's only been during the last, uh, I'd say, last 20 years or so that I realized that that was a core issue in many aspects of mental health and quality of life issues. Yeah, yeah, so it's not just a, an individual pursuit of understanding how to regulate yourself, yeah. Well, it actually becomes, you start off with the individual pursuit, and then it somehow blends into your, uh, if you're a scientist, it kind of blends into your research questions. So it starts off by saying what, what types of physiological changes are more related to being able to process information more efficiently, and then when you start developing those skills and you start thinking about those processes, you give up the issues or you, you subjugate the questions regarding cognition, and you start asking about uh, bodily feelings and you start asking about emotions and basically uh, can you regulate in the presence of others or what is it that makes you functionally feel better mm -hmm. so it's kind of an interesting dialectic about how nervous system interplays with um, our, our feelings or visceral feelings yeah yeah so how our nervous system interplays with our visceral feelings so how does it well, you see, this is a very good question, but people interested in, in body psychotherapy live in that world because most of uh, clinical psychology and psychiatry is really a top-down model, which doesn't even allow anxiety to really live in, the, in your viscera. Uh, fortunately, there are people like the body psychotherapists who have a real understanding of the and an intuition regarding the importance of sensory information coming from the body going up and affecting how we uh, respond to the world and vice versa, how the uh, our perspective of the world, our perceptions and our reactions to various features in the environment change our viscera. So this interactive notion is extremely, uh, uh, you know, it, it's an intuitive notion, but unfortunately much of... Um, uh, clinical medicine and much of clinical psychiatry has really neglected a real respect for the bidirectionality of the viscera and the brain and the brain on the viscera. Yeah, so that sense of bidirectionality, not just things, feelings don't happen by themselves in some kind of a ethereal sphere, uh, and uh, there's a bidirectionality. Yeah, absolutely, and what you start thinking about is really the... Uh, as I, I said earlier, I think the subjugation of feelings to thoughts. And even when we go back to uh, the uh, real uh, important work by Descartes where he starts talking about uh, mind-body dualism, and he talks about, you know, in, in French, je pense, je, donc je suis, and of course your, your French is better, much better than mine, but is that I think, therefore I am. He does not uh, use the phrase, uh, j'aime, uh, j'aime sens, donc je suis, and yes. my, my pronunciation is horrible, but using the reflexive form of the word feel, it's really how your body is feeling, your visceral feelings. That's not part of the equation. 
but can you imagine if if that's what Descartes had really said, where we would be today yes. in terms of the developmental trajectory of what it is to be a human? And what we've done is really said to be a good human is we really have to uh, depress or reject or subjugate visceral feelings to enable our our good brain, our smart brain to work. And of course, the consequences of this is really they end up in many, many of your clients uh, have these features where they're not respecting their body's own responses and not even aware of it at times. So it might make sense to actually uh, spend a little moment talking about, uh, you know, how a visceral feeling connects, you know, happens, uh, what the experience of it is. Because in a way there is a problem even with the expression of visceral feelings. It's as if, you know, when that expression could almost connote the fact that it's a feeling that happens in the viscera, therefore disconnected yeah. from the rest of the body and the nervous system. Well, it's really quite, I'm actually writing on this down, thinking about this, because what I was really working on is this whole notion of what it is to be safe. And this becomes a critical issue is that uh, I, we actually live within a paradoxical perspective of safety. We think we know, and we think by using the word know that, that safety is all def is defined by uh, our cognitions and can be uh, structured you know, by cognitive uh, skill sets, meaning words. We can define what safety is. Yet, safety is really our body's response to the environment. And we, we basically are working very hard to forget that body's responses. So if we think about children in classroom environments, some children are very unsafe in that physical environment and have great difficulties in learning. But because some individuals are safe, we impose upon everyone the fact that if some are safe and can function, everyone should. And so our society really functions on the notion that uh, if you have the individual difference of being highly reactive or viscerally responsive, you should turn that off. That's bad. So rather than investigating and understanding this in many ways, uh, uh, celebrating some of the unique sensitivities that people have, we basically say it's bad. And this bleeds over into the world that you and many of your colleagues work in, and that is the world of trauma. Because in the world of trauma, people's bodies respond. And it responds in ways, once they respond following trauma, they often are totally different people. They can't uh, relate or interact in the same world. And they're often made to feel, whether it's feeling within society or even within clinical sessions, that the way they are responding now is bad. They actually get an evaluation that their behavior isn't good. And in evaluating their behavior, it puts them further and further into defensive strategies. So I want to, to slow it down a little bit because there's so much information in what you're, you're giving. And um, a part about, for instance, taking uh, kids at school and having a pre-imposed model that's almost a mechanical model of functioning like machines. If one machine functions a certain way, then all such machines are going to have to be expected to have the same behavior. And therefore, uh, you know, a prophecy in bed about uh, what is the right level of activation or response. Uh, which is ignoring uh, the way actually that uh, the these are responses of an individual organism to its environment. 
Yes. Uh, another way, even to, uh, in a sense, uh, re-emphasize what you very succinctly described, uh, we treat children in schools as if they're learning machines. And the success of schools really is defined by what information we're able to program into that machine. Uh, we don't uh, respect the fact that perhaps the skill set of learning how to regulate your visceral state, your bodily state, being able to be social, being able to know when you can't deal with things or when you're overwhelmed so you can develop strategies to cope, those aren't part of the curriculum. It's, it becomes quite evident when you start working or doing research with very challenged individuals like autistic children. And interestingly, with autistic children, the, the basic treatment model or the educational model is a special education model, and that tends to be basically more learning, more learning, and more learning without uh, building into the model that the real problem with autism, as well as with many other clinical disorders, is the ability to be calm and to viscerally regulate in the presence of others. So what they're doing is forcing uh, people to be in context of situations that make learning and other behaviors very inefficient. Yes, and, uh, and, and what um, you know, people, therapists do these days is are very careful to, to realize that clients cannot change unless they're in a regulated state. So um, we take children and try to force feed them when they haven't learned the basic of regulation. Or their nervous system hasn't developed well enough to be able to be regulated. So we, we try to use, again, laws of learning, and we try to up the motivation, whether it's through punishment or reward, to change the behavior when perhaps the system isn't developed enough or is atypical. And uh, so those strategies are basically inefficient. To, to basically put it into another metaphor, and this is a metaphor that I use in my talks, I talk about an underlying visceral state as coloring our, our reaction to the world. So I put a slide up of a, of a traffic light, which has a green, yellow, and red lights, and they're representing different physiological states. And I put a common physical stimulus out in the environment, and you get a response on the other side. But based upon whether the individual is in a state that supports safety, which would be a green light, uh, the response will be different than if he's in a state that re reflects danger, which would be yellow, or life threat, which would be red. So the same physical stimulus in the environment could produce three different responses in, in, in different individuals or even in the same individual based upon the physiological state. Yes. So um, as you, you describe this interaction between you know, cognitive processes, reactions, and uh, the ability to regulate our emotions and our reaction to fear, um, it feels that you're giving actually a great example of what you said earlier about how that's a different conception of what it's like to be human. Yes, yes. And it's basically saying what are our goals, what are the, in what are the goals of our institutions? Are the goals of our institutions to enable people to merely walk around with more information, or are goals to make people be able to literally uh, interact and reciprocally regulate each other to feel good? So this goes back to this uh, uh, what Descartes said, and we basically have followed this track of more thinking, more cognition, to uh, quote smarter people. But in that level of smartness, they've become, or we've become, literally uh, ignorant 
about what our bodies really need to feel good. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe we talk about what our bodies need to feel good. Uh, maybe we can talk a little more about that mechanism of how the the visceral reaction works, how that, that circuit is between the viscera, the nervous system. Um, because in a way, um, a lot of the time that people talk about, um, you know, being in their body or there's a there's almost a, a mystical a metaphysical quality to to, uh, to the body versus thought and i think yeah. as you describe the process itself uh, you know there is a sense of that bottom up quality hmm. well the there being in the body is, is uh, or attunement or whatever terms that people like to use today they're you know again they're intuitions um, what I'd like to say is that the goal of society or the goal of, of of humanity is to be able to immobilize without fear and you're going to find that a very strange metaphor but if you think about it um, it's really part of your goals of your therapies you don't want people to be quote tightly wrapped anxious and defensive and you want them to be able to sit down and be embraced and be hugged and to hug others, to conform physically and to be reciprocal in the relationships. And if people are, in a sense, tightly wrapped with a high motor tone, high sympathetic nervous system state, they're conveying to another person uh, a defensiveness. And whether we call this... Um, Anxiety or not is really whether what in a sense what license you have on on your on on your on your wall. But basically, if you're tightly wrapped in under sympathetic uh, stimulation and the muscles are prepared to move, you're not going to be uh, quote you're, you're you're conveying cues to the other person that you're not really safe to be close to. And so we're dealing with very interesting dyadic issues about when we use the term being in the body and also being near another person. And this may be a good time to kind of emphasize some of these neural circuits. First of all, uh, the autonomic nervous system is extraordinarily important in conveying information about our viscera to our brain. Uh, the vagus, which is really the world I, I literally live in, has about 80% of its fibers are sensory, so it's conveying a lot of information, and it's bringing this up to an area in the brainstem. It's not, it doesn't have the same uh, neural specificity as someone pinching you on the back where you can localize, or some touching something in your fingertips where you have great localization. These, these visceral feelings have great... Uh, uh, there's a diffuseness to them, so the actual labeling becomes difficult. But the motor parts of the autonomic nervous system are very interesting in terms of what they regulate. Um, most individuals learn that we have two branches of the autonomic nervous system, uh, a branch that is really a mobilization or defensive one, which, which is a sympathetic nervous system associated with fight-flight behaviors, and another branch called the parasympathetic nervous system, of which the vagus is the primary, which is often associated with uh, growth, health, and restoration. While, while that simple metaphor of paired antagonism is a useful one, it's really not totally accurate when describing how our body reacts to challenges. And it's this misunderstanding that actually led me into developing the polyvagal theory because the polyvagal theory actually articulates two defensive systems, a defensive system of fight-flight, which everyone is familiar with, 
which is sympathetic and, and adrenal related, but also another defensive system, which is an immobilization, shutting down, often passing out, dissociating uh, a, a system that is really a life threat system. And we, of course, can see this in mice when a cat picks up the mouse and they immobilize and they look dead. Mm-hmm. So we actually have a vagal system, which is a defense system. And this was literally written out of the literature because people want to have a nice, simple paired antagonism model. And sitting above this system, all, both those systems, is a newer, uniquely mammalian myelinate vagus, which is linked to the, the muscles of the face and head, so that when people are smiling and when they're happy and when their uh, voice has good prosody or intonation, and they're able to focus and hear human voice, the myelinate vagus is actually calming us down and efficiently uh, processing our, our cardiovascular needs and our metabolic needs. It's sitting on top of the sympathetics, turning them off. Yeah, so so the, the vagus or the two uh, parts of the vagus nerve are in fact on the one hand the most ancient and also the most recent parts of our evolution. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, of a, a vertebrate evolution, yes, vertebrate, exactly. Yeah. And uh, and the uh, fight flight is in between. Yeah, right. And we the fight flight, of course, we were the way I like to view it is that mammals, when they evolved, had to had to succeed since they needed to have interaction for nursing and for you know other forms of social needs. They needed to be able to turn off these defensive systems. But they need to know when to turn them off. And again, this becomes the issue in our society. When do we turn off our defenses? When will we be, when are we safe to be in the arms of another? When are we safe to go to work? When are we safe to go to sleep? So your clients will often have issues about they're not safe with other people. They can't be hugged. They have sleeping disorders. They have gut disorders. All these things are autonomic features that happen when this newer myelinated vagal system isn't serving as this major regulator of those older systems. Yeah. Yeah, so so really understanding better our heritage, our apparatus, in order to be able to use it for effective regulation. Right, right. And, and what I've, I'm starting to focus on is if we want to know the clues of the vulnerabilities of humans in terms of their health and mental, the physical and mental health, is we need to, in a sense, focus on the neural structures that change from the phylogenetic transition from, from reptiles to mammals. And it's really interesting if you start doing that, you start seeing that in that transition, one of the most important things is this myelinate vagus and the lack of dependence on a immobilization defense system. So if we think about turtles, or of course our common, uh, our common ancestor with reptiles is not a snake or a lizard, it's actually an ancient tortoise. And if we start thinking about what is that, the, the primary defensive systems of the large tortoise, it's immobilization. Mm-hmm. And, when, and when we start thinking about what's happening to traumatized individuals, well, many of them will have experienced that immobilization response. Yeah. So we, so we need to, in a sense, demystify the responses and understand them as being very ancient and then understanding what happens when we actually use ancient responses. It's often very difficult to become what we were be- before, so we actually may have reorganized. 
Yes, so we're, we're really talking about uh, the fact that in a way uh, the stronger the stress, uh, the more we tend to regress to a very archaic uh, form of survival. Yeah, and we can actually shift or even modify the word uh, from from strength of the stressor to basically saying reduction of options of dealing with the stressor. Mm-hmm. So that if we could uh, flee or fight, we're going to do that. We're going to use the sympathetics. But if we're locked in a room or being held down, we have very few options. And we're going to then go automatically, not through any volitional behavior, but we'll be triggered into these older circuits. Uh, I'll give you an example. I was um, watching a CNN clip, and they were showing the plane that was having great difficulty in landing. The, the wings were tipping up, and it was kind of looked really, really precarious. And it landed safely, and the reporter went to interview the passengers. And I'm sure the reporter had the great expectation that the, the person that he would interview would say that this was very scary and I was ready to jump out of my skin. So he goes up to a woman, and the woman, he says, how did you feel during this, this uh, landing? And she said, feel? I passed out. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, the, but she wasn't the, you know, not everyone passed out. Some people were functionally, you know, jumping out of their skin. Mm-hmm. But her nervous system interpreted this inability to fight or to flee as a life threat and shut her down, just like the mouse in the jaws of a cat. Yeah. And you can start seeing the adaptive function of that is one, is going to raise pain thresholds, and two, if you're going to die because you're now mildly hypoxic, you're not going to feel anything. Yeah. And, and, and then if you survive, hopefully you'll be fine or at least alive. And uh, so the real issue, of course, is to kind of respect these things that our body does automatically and not to be angry at our bodies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, again, we're coming back to, in a way, what it's like to be human and to yeah. have that embodied experience. Right. And part of uh, the embodied experience becomes very critical to humans and to many, many other mammals because the requirement of being interactive with other humans is critical for their survival. From the Because when they're born, they need uh, nursing and someone has to take care of them, and similar things happen when they're very old. But the issue is humans require other humans to interact. And there's this well, a term that used to be used uh, within the, um, I think it's been used within the psychiatric community, which is something called symbiotic regulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we have to go back and really redefine that because what it really is is sending cues to the other person's nervous system so that that person sends cues back to you that this, this is safe to go into the arms of the other. And, and you, you, you have paid attention to that in terms of the mechanism in which we have evolved love and attachment. Yeah, but I think there's some really other interesting examples. So when you deal with HIV uh, uh, subjects or patients, you find out that their caregivers tend to get very angry with them and feel unloved. 
you feel the same thing or get the same information when you talk to parents of autistic children. The parents feel unloved by the child. And what they're really saying is that in both cases, the facial expressivity of the child is limited. Um, the child and the HIV patient, they're not making eye gaze, they're not using facial expressivity, and their voice isn't conveying any, any prosodic features or intonation. So they're basically become more machine-like in their mm-hmm. behaviors, and, and the caregivers and the parents feel disengaged. They feel insulted. Their body is responding. And so an important aspect of therapy is really not to merely deal with the, with the patient, but also to deal with the dyad dealing with the patient. So the parents or the caregivers need to understand that their interpretation of the behavior is the natural physiological response. Mm-hmm. However, they can attribute motivation to, mm-hmm. the, to the behavior. And this creates, like teachers in schools where kids disengage by turning away, they'll get just angry and they'll start being abusive to the kids. Yeah, yeah, so we can override our uh, unfiltered reactions. Uh, we can attempt to override it. They're very hard. Yeah. And I, I've actually, in, in some of the workshops that I've run, I've actually um, created a little experiment where I, what I call the reluctant therapist, where I have the therapist turning away while the client's talking. And so it says people go through these role-playing, and they almost get to... A, uh, situations where they want to hit each other, uh, or it's just say the client gets so upset, and then you reverse it. It's mm-hmm. really quite an amazing thing how easily our bodies change state when people disengage us when when we engage them. Yes, yes. So, so that's uh, the the powerful part is that even knowing it, even in a role play situation, it has yeah. such a hold on us that we really uh, cannot so easily disengage from it. Yeah, it's, it's quite amazing. And, and of course, in, in your practices where you may be dealing with, with couples, uh, or let's say one of the couples has a trauma history which will make, which will, uh, in a sense, result in often gaze averting or losing ability to regulate state, what's the other person's response to this? Um, mm-hmm. it, often it, it's basically just really angry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as I'm listening to you, there's something that feels very nice about um, the, um, you know, deconstructing that mechanism of what happens in an interaction, and um, a sense of um, that part of that search uh, results in a way of helping not take these things personally, helping removing the area of blame, helping removing the layers of interpretation that are a block to people functioning effectively um, with others. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think we live in a world that uh, places, what I, the term I use is a moral veneer over people's behavior. So it tries to pre- interpret it as being motivated. And uh, I, I often, I use, when I give talks to clinicians, I, I always say, well, well when you, you're, your boss or your chairman doesn't look at you, when you talk to them, you feel bad. And then I realize that most clinicians don't work for anyone. <laughs> and they, they, they don't work for anyone because those types of behaviors bother them. 
And but if you're in an academic world, um, administrators tend not to have the best social skills. Uh, uh, but I'm really trying to say that the social skills are not learned skills. They're much more biologically emergent. So there are people who make good eye contact, who have curiosity, facial expressivity. They have this reciprocity in the interaction. And what they're doing is throwing cues at the other person to make that other person feel safe. And when those cues work, the other person starts throwing reciprocal cues back. Uh, so the face starts becoming, you would see it as more alive, more expressive. The intonation would be greater. The physical distance between people might be reduced. These are all the things that I'm sure you see within your clinical uh, practices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That we do, and when we're in the middle of a clinical practice, we really pay attention to it, and we're very aware of it, but of course, as we react as human beings, we have just as much difficulty as everybody else paying attention to yeah. it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, my test has always been that when being a father and understanding that uh, you react to your kids when they start throwing things at you or you react to your students when you're a mentor. And when I said throwing things, I don't mean throwing physically, but throwing cues. Mm-hmm. And you have to really step back and say, oh, uh, what if they haven't eaten? What if they haven't slept? What if they have all these other things going on? Their ability to recruit uh, functionally, the neural circuit that supports safety and social interaction is going to be very challenged. So their ability to be engaging, expressive, and understanding is going to be very limited. And we can flip this into in terms of the whole culture that we live in, which is really a culture that says you can't do enough, you can't work hard enough, you can't accumulate enough, and everything is evaluative. So the culture is really saying, uh, you're in a dangerous place. And I always wonder, what would humanity be like if we were more respectful for the needs of humanity to have safe environments? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, two things. One is that question of uh, what if we actually were paying attention to safety as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, accumulating or also judgment in terms of, um, you know, being uh, uh, evaluated in terms of accumulation. But also what you're saying is that the way out, the shift out, is not so much an intellectual shift uh, or an emotional shift about simply paying attention to safety, but is uh, changing into a different system, voluntarily fostering the ability to shift into the social engagement system. Yeah. Well, again, if we are smart, and this is where science can be helpful, we can start learning what are the features in the environment that functionally uh, trigger our nervous system into fight-flight or allow us to move into a safe and uh, recruit this social engagement system and what are the features that shut us down. And often things like background noises, a lot of clinical practices are in office buildings with low frequency ventilation on it or they're near elevators or like I heard a little bit earlier, I think a siren went by in your place. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, I see. <laughs> right, right. And you might have heard on my side the elevated train, the L in Chicago went by. Now these are producing physical cues to our nervous system to be basically vigilant and to anticipate potential danger. So we're, we're in a sense bombarding our nervous system with a lot of these features. And a smart environment would really get the, the information out of there. 
so that our nervous system wouldn't have to be hypervigilant for predator or for danger, but can now and functionally relax, engage, and get all the benefits of a, of a social interaction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Removing, paying attention to all of these uh, things that put us in a hypervigilant mode. Yeah, I, I've actually started thinking about like even the issue of, of mindfulness meditation mm-hmm. and and realize that you if you wanted to do any of those exercises, you need truly to be in a safe environment because your breath and your attentiveness to would be distracted, would be different if you're if there's any degree of hypervigilance. And I realized that even the metaphor of evaluation, which or non-judgment, which is part of meditation, uh, is really if we use the word evaluation and we and we map it into the polyvagal theory, evaluation is really the same thing as saying we're in a dangerous environment. Mm-hmm. And and scanning the environment for danger, yeah. paying attention yeah. to where to run. Yeah. 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 And, and so when we, in a sense are making our kids study and attend or focus, we're basically recruiting hypervigilant states that are modified to be focused, but are certainly not healthy states. Yes, yes. So we're coming back to that sense of safety for the kids, but for the grown-up, uh, for everybody, as you mentioned, the sense that, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't make sense to really think about mindfulness or pursue mindfulness uh, per se with, without really actually paying attention to how we tend to be reacting to a lack of safety. So the awareness yeah. of what it is that makes us feel unsafe, the awareness of facing it, the dealing with it, is really a prerequisite for finding mindfulness. Right, and the, and the flip side is a prerequisite to know what are the features that enable you to feel safe, to turn off these defensiveness. And that, to me, is really what becomes exciting in the future of, of clinical treatments. That if, if we were, in a sense, more understanding of the necessary features in the environment that turn off the defensive systems, then uh, clinical practices or clinical treatments could be more efficient, and so would you know life would be a lot better. And so there are a lot of features that are important, including uh, getting rid of the low frequency noises in the environment, uh, reducing the unpredictability of of environments. And basically having uh, people in people's, uh, uh, having someone that you feel safe with. Mm-hmm. And so we're in a way evolving toward treating underlying causes as opposed to treating symptoms. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I actually think that the primary core, and then, so if we, if we take this notion that we have different neural circuits that evolve with different, uh, Profoundly important adaptive functions. So there's no 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 emergent behavior that is functionally bad. All the behaviors have adaptiveness. Except some of the adaptive features of uh, the adaptive features of some behaviors are contradictory for social behavior and for social interaction. 
Mm-hmm. And the goal of therapy is, of course, to enable people, I hope, to make people, uh, enable them to regulate their visceral state and to be, in, to engage in others and to enjoy the interactions with others. And that requires that newest mammalian circuit. But that circuit is only available if we can downregulate our reactions or our systems that evolve for defense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we're no longer talking in terms of um, traditional pathologies, but we're talking about uh, uh, things that have, in a way, are good reactions to possibly bad perceptions, or uh, uh, you know, basically regulating the way we function. Yeah, and actually, I, I tend not to like the word perception because that involves a degree of awareness and uh, you know, the very cognitive process. Mm-hmm. We respond to things in in ways that, like like a polygraph, our body is responding to people and places. It's just now our job to be literally to read our own uh, uh, printout. We have to know that when we feel uncomfortable, there's a reason our body is feeling uncomfortable. And we need to, in a sense, adapt and adjust to that. Um, yeah. Yeah, except uh, to, to play devil's advocate, I would, you know, argue with the sense of reading the information because there again, that would be a cognitive process. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. We get into, it's a conundrum, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. It's uh, hard to amazing. talk about processes without having these images. Yeah, yeah. So what I think we can kind of slide out of that one by by merely saying at least we want to respect our body's reactions. We can, yes. And, and rather than uh, continually try to develop a skill set that rejects whatever our body uh, is telling us, mm-hmm. then we mm-hmm. kind of respect it. And the other term I like to use use is that when we respect it, we then kind of uh, use our awareness and our voluntary behavior to navigate into places where we would feel more comfortable. Mm. So we can kind of create a partnership between the, uh, the respect for our, our bodily feelings with our, uh, our stewardship of our body through our cognitive functions. Yeah, I mean, that language for me, as I hear you, uh, evokes a visual of gentle waves of, as opposed to jagged movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there, I, I, you know, when we're all younger, we can deal with, like, noisy places like bars or crowded rooms and places. But as we get older, sometimes when we're in those crowded places, our body starts to functionally fail us. And we want to get out of there. And a lot of people don't really, in a sense, respect those reactions until it's too late, until they can no longer control their behavior in those settings. Yeah, so we have, you know, in a way, a lot of our pathologies come from too great an ability to override those signals. Yeah, it, it's what we're we're getting the signals. We're just saying we're not respecting them. So mm-hmm. uh, because because the society, I think this has a lot to do with culture, and it goes back to my you know, kind of introductory comments on Descartes, which was this uh, subjugation of bodily feelings to cognitive functions. And also, if we go back to even issues regarding religion and the notion of Western religion being very much involved in uh, dispelling the importance of bodily feelings because they became part of the animal, while cognitions were merely on our way to becoming spiritual or becoming away from the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we get to that sense of um, uh, the conception of who we are from a bottom-up perspective. And, yeah, the, well, it's a bottom up and a top down. We we want to keep everything moving, 
um, because part of the top part of our brain is regulating our viscera and the viscera is providing information what's also extremely important is a lot of our you know it's the simple thing like posture uh, when we shift our posture or lean back, we're actually sending different information up our blood pressure receptors, our bowel receptors to our brain. So when we lean back, we tend to get a little, um, uh, in a sense, um, more relaxed, less aware. Mm-hmm. But if we move to an upright position, we trigger a different change in blood pressure that makes us alert and focused. And we become a functionally two different types of people. I, I have this wonderful chair that is it's called the perfect chair. It's a zero gravity reclining one. And I go into that and I don't want to get out of it. And I feel totally lethargic. I don't want to do any work or write. Nothing's mm-hmm. interesting to me. I just want to be there. <laughs> but when I, when I go up to my office and sit in my desk, I'm in the upright thing and I say, well, this is, this is interesting. This is fun. I love doing this. But, I'm a different person. What I'm saying is when I'm in that reclined mode, I can't even get myself motivated to get out of it. Yeah. So it's a simple little shift in posture does amazing things to how we react to the world, how we organize our thoughts, and how we motivate ourselves. Yes, but and, and, and what's interesting there is uh, uh, it's a shift in posture but it's also a shift in the dyad between, uh, say, me and the environment, uh, because it's uh, it's not, you know, in the example you described, it's me, the posture, and the chair I'm in. Uh, well, actually, you're you're onto something. And another way of viewing it, and you know, is you're shifting from being focused on on smooth muscle. Mm-hmm. To being fo- to recruiting striated muscle because when you sit up, you're increasing the muscle tone. You're, you're recruiting different circuits, and when you're in that zero gravity bit, you, your muscle tone is quite relaxed, and you really become literally a smooth muscle organism, mm-hmm. <laughs> which has a different agenda. Right, it right. has an agenda of conservation of resource of, of of restoration. But when you're in the upright and you get the skeletal muscles working, you're now in a, a interactive, engaging uh, uh, organism. So, so in a in a philosophical way, uh, you think of the individual, the self, as a process, and under certain circumstances, the process becomes um, oriented toward uh, being a smooth, uh, relaxed. Uh, yeah. 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 And, 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 you know, when you get into those moods and those states and those physiological processes occurring, um, there are probably some wonderful things happening in terms of health and growth and restoration, even in terms of ideas and thoughts. But you're not a very social organism when you like that. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're in a way just uh, talking about the way in which um, we can be different cells. We can, uh, we, we, we uh, and these cells form as a reaction to, uh, as an adaptation to, to, as a response to, to the environment of the moment. And, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that we think of the, there, I, the term, I, I like to use terms like there are different neural platforms upon which different emergent adaptive behaviors can occur. 
so it, when, I, when I'm in the zero-gravity uh, perfect chair, it's not that my behavior is maladaptive. It's just, but it would be viewed as being maladaptive if I had a group of friends over for the evening. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the, the context is really defining what is appropriately adaptive, but the behavior is, each of the behaviors are adaptive if they're in the appropriate context for those behaviors. And what we end up seeing is that pathology is really defined by an adaptive response uh, or I should say a response that would be adaptive in one setting is now being uh, elicited in a setting where it's now maladaptive. Mm -hmm. And so trauma victims who may be dissociating or shutting down, this may have been extraordinarily adaptive during the traumatic event, but it's maladaptive during a social, in a social setting. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, so sense of um, changing the definition of pathology to what is a reaction that is adaptive to the current circumstances or not. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think uh, once we do that, there's no, no such thing as bad behavior. There's just uh, behavior that uh, doesn't fit the context. Mm-hmm. And, and then we, we, we take away some of the moral set, uh, moral labels that, that have really uh, affected people. Yeah. And uh, it's, in, uh, it's in a context, uh, I mean, definitely very, very important, very powerful, that taking away that stigma, taking away the judgment, taking away the moral context. And judgment, evaluation, in a way, puts us in a mode of uh, danger. Defense. Defense. Uh, yes, yes, and, yes. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. And in contrast, you're, 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 sorry, go ahead. You're, I was going to say you're, you're really getting it and getting the you've distilled the whole process because once we're there, we can no longer. Once we're in the state of evaluation and defensiveness, we can't engage those other circuits that are objective in actually trying to work with the client. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and in contrast, uh, this is a view that is about, uh, you know, just uh, understanding that these are processes that have a certain inherent flow and redirecting, learning, uh, you know, just uh, uh, in a way working with that potential that we have to learn and adapt. Yeah, well, you brought up one important point, and I probably should bring this up before we close, and that is even though we have those three circuits, we can modify the two defensive circuits through the use of this newer mammalian social engagement system so that we can mobilize without being in fight and flight. We call that play. We can, but what does play have that's different than, than the defensiveness of fight or flight? Well, play has face-to-face -face, uh, social referencing. It's using that social engagement system to uh, signal that the intentionality of the movements are not uh, going to be dangerous. And you can see this if you watch dogs play with each other. They'll chase each other, they'll do a little bite, and then they'll make a face-to-face, -face, and then they'll reverse the mm -hmm. roll. The other one will chase. And if we watch people when, 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 we, when they play sports, if they hit someone, the other person, uh, if they make good eye contact and they apologize, there's never any aggressive act. Mm -hmm. But if they hit someone and they walk away, Someone's going to chase them, and, 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 and it's really aggression. Likewise, the immobilization circuit gets co-opted by the social engagement circuit, and we call this, you know, we call this foreplay. 
So when people are or, or loving behaviors, there, there's face-to-face and there's immobilization, where people are learning over time or experiencing over time the ability to be immobilized in the arms of the other. And I keep emphasizing this because for mammals, immobilization is really a potential for for something very bad to happen to them. So mammals uh, always move unless they can feel safe with another. Yeah, so we're talking about the good immobilization. Yeah, right. Yeah, and this is often recruited by the immobilization response is uh, interacting with to become a, in a sense a a positive immobilization response. It's interacting with neuropeptides like oxytocin, which actually are targeting areas in the brainstem like the source nucleus that regulates that old unmyelinate vagus. So that it enables uh, us, in this case women, to give birth without, in a sense, going into syncope or passing out or dying. Mm-hmm. And enables people to, you know, cuddle and hug without problems. It enables women to breastfeed without without uh, having to move. They can immobilize. Mm-hmm. So there's a real interesting issue of how we've used old structures that evolved for defense, and how we've changed them or co-opted them for for play behaviors, fun behaviors, and for reproductive and sexual behaviors. Yeah, great. So, so that's a, a nice way. That's a context in which we have, uh, you know, in that large context, what we do in therapy is, in a way, part of that is yeah. uh, continuing that ability to adapt these structures. Yep. Yeah. To create, to enable your clients to have more and more flexibility. Yes. In the world. Yes. Thanks, Steve. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website, relationalimplicit.com. Old structures that evolved for defense and how we've changed them or co-opted them for, for play behaviors, fun behaviors, and for reproductive and sexual behaviors. Yeah, great. So, so that's a, a nice way. That's a context in which we have, uh, you know, in that large context, what we do in therapy is, in a way, part of that is yeah. uh, continuing that ability to adapt these structures. Yeah, yeah. To create, to enable your clients to have more and more flexibility. Yes. In the world. Yes. Thanks, Steve. This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.